Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And a big thank you goes out to my eight new supporters via Patreon. As you know by now, next week I officially begin what I'm calling the Psychedelic Salon 3.0 track. Basically, it's a continuation of this 1.0 track that we're listening to right now. However, through Patreon, my supporters are going to get a private RSS feed, and that's the new 3.0 feed. So, from now on, uh, after today's podcast, all of my new Salon 1 podcasts, plus things uh, like selected Terrence McKenna soundbites and readings from me by my books, well, all of that's going to first appear on the Patreon RSS feed. Then, three months after a new 1.0 podcast appears on the Patreon feed, I'll rebroadcast it here. So, over time, you'll still be able to hear everything that I publish from the salon. It's just that my supporters on Patreon are going to get to hear them a few months before everybody else. As uh, they used to say in Texas, you ought to dance with the one who brung you. <laughs> now, as, as much as I've tried to avoid doing this, my personal financial situation has, uh, well, has been leaning toward the dire side. <laughs> and so I'm trying to see if this uh, is a way I can get my head back above water. So, for only $1 a month, you can not only get access to the first run of many of my podcasts, you're also invited to join other saloners and me for a live one-and-a-half-hour version of the Psychedelic Salon every Monday night. And we've been doing this all year long now, and it's uh, developed into a nice little uh, Monday night salon. And this is a true salon, you know, where everybody who wants to gets a chance to chime in. And there are other reward tiers. Uh, however, I'm planning on eventually only having $1 and $5 reward levels. So when one of my larger dollar supporters has to uh, reduce their monthly donation, I keep reducing the number for that level. <laughs> but the other day, one of my uh, eight $25 a month patrons reduced their monthly donation, and I planned on reducing the number for that group to seven. But I wasn't fast enough, and before I could reduce the number of slots available at that level, David A. snuck in and filled it up again. <laughs> so thanks a lot, David. You're a real gem. Now, before we begin today, I have an announcement that I think you'll be interested in. It comes from Janine Saget, who we heard from in Podcast 471, which is titled, Healing for PTSD is Available. And in that episode, we learned about the Indiegogo campaign that Janine and others had organized to raise funds for the production of a motion picture that's titled, From Shock to All. Well, I am very pleased to let you know that not only was their financial campaign successful, they have now completed production of their film and it will be screened in select theaters in just two weeks. As uh, we're all well aware here in the salon, psychedelic therapy, which we'll be hearing more about from Rick Doblin in just a moment, has finally returned to mainstream medicine where it was back, uh, well, way back. <laughs> and when it comes to treating PTSD, well, there's actually more than one path available. And while MAPS's uh, MDMA studies continue to move us closer to proven therapies to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, there's also another way that uh, many of us vets have taken, and that's through the use of ayahuasca. In the film, From Shock to Awe, You'll hear women like Brooke Cooley who says, and I quote, 
Ayahuasca and MDMA saved me, my husband, and my family. Had psychedelic therapy not come into our lives, not only would Mike and I be divorced, but there is a solid chance that one or both of us wouldn't be alive. End quote. From shock to awe actually strikes a balance with a taboo topic that could have tremendous impact on society. The documentary premieres on November 12th, 2018, all across the U.S., but with a special one-night event, Coming Home Beyond Veterans Day. The event includes theatrical screenings in over 25 U.S. cities, followed by a live Q&A with the cast and filmmakers. Additionally, the film's release launches a social impact campaign aimed at empowering people with information that opens a dialogue about trauma and supporting scientific research and saving lives. Janine tells me that all 25 of these venues are theater-on-demand, which means that we need to reach a minimum number of tickets sold in each location. So we have a big job in getting the message out. I hope that you can help us spread the word, actually. And, you know, this is an important movie, one that can change the lives of some of the people who see it. So if there's any way for you to make one of these showings, I think that you'll also find there are many of the others there as well. And you can get all of the information you need on their website, which is an easy-to-remember URL. It's simply fromshocktoawe.com, all in one word. And there you can watch a trailer as well as find the location of a screening nearest to you. And uh, maybe in a month or so, we can get Shauna home to do another interview with the people behind this important project. Now, for today's program, which also deals with ways in which the suffering from PTSD can be reduced and, in some cases, even eliminated altogether, well, I'm going to play the rest of the talk that we began last week. If you've listened to the previous podcasts before that one, the ones number 585 and 586, and while you're listening to them, you wondered how or if any of the what they were saying affected the MAPS organization, then I strongly recommend that you listen to this, the second half of Rick Doblin's 2018 Palenque Norte Lecture. In particular, I hope that you pay close attention when Rick is addressing some of the ethical issues that have, well, they've arisen as MAPS pushes the envelope of MDMA therapy even further ahead. And while you may still have some questions after listening to Rick right now, I want you to know that I am firmly in support of his positions. He's had to deal with some very tricky issues, and as a lawyer myself, I'm well aware of the fact that we don't always get exactly everything we want. However, in the case of where we are today, with the research that MAPS and Rick are behind, well, I believe that Rick has navigated our psychedelic voyage of discovery exceedingly well. So now let's return to the playa at Burning Man on a hot Friday night, the night before the burn, in fact, and listen to the last of the 2018 Palenque Norte Lectures. Now, here is Rick Doblin. What happened to change, how I describe it, is two different things that changed. One is that um, in December, there was a two-paragraph little announcement in Reddit that um, a new fund was being created called the Pineapple Fund. Um, how many of you have heard of the Pineapple Fund? Okay, I'd say a small fraction of you. So it turns out that um, what this announcement was, this was an announcement that um, an early Bitcoin investor had um, all these Bitcoins, and um, he, of course, wanted to, he wanted to remain anonymous. And so he announced in December that he was going to give away 5,600 Bitcoins. 
which at the time were worth $88 million. And I didn't know anything about this, but several people saw it, emailed MAP staff, and one of the MAP staff wrote a one-page grant application, sent it to Pine at the Pineapple Fund, and the next day we get an email, an email says, I'm giving you a million dollars. And then two hours later, the Bitcoin showed up in our wall. Uh, and then four days later, we got another million dollars in Bitcoins from, we have no idea who it was from. Right? And, and then we get this email from Pine saying, I'd be open to talking to you about a matching grant. And we're like, great, okay, that sounds really, really good. And so we talked a lot about it, and, but in the process, I got to get to know him a little bit better through emails and trying to find out what motivated him. Uh, and what he said was that he had borderline personality disorder and he had depression and he decided to go for therapy. And he wasn't sure what therapy to go for and he decided to go for ketamine therapy. So ketamine is considered the most important discovery in neuroscience for depression in the last 30 years. And there's, a, there's now a thousand ketamine clinics in America for refractory depression. It's being seen mostly just as a pharmacological drug without therapy, they just give ketamine. It tends to help people for short periods of time, they need repeated doses. Occasionally it'll help people permanently, but he went for ketamine therapy. And under the influence of ketamine, he had a vision. And this vision was that there was a simple way for him to get out of depression and get out of borderline personality. And the simple way for him to get out of that was to help other people. And if you've ever tried this when you're depressed, to help other people is really a tremendous way to get out of being wrapped up in your own mind. And so he decided that the best way he could help other people was to give away um, more than half of his wealth in Bitcoins. And so then he proposed that he would uh, give us a $4 million matching grant. And we negotiated what would the match be, how do we work that out, and we had from January 10th to March 10th to raise this um, $4 million. And we managed to do it with a week to spare. And so he sent us $4 million more Bitcoins. Um, this was also at the peak of the Bitcoin, so that the price was going down. So he would be selling us, sending us more and more Bitcoins. And so in the end, um, he gave away $55 million within uh, two and a half months. And the Pineapple Fund is now gone. Um, there's a legacy of where he gave all the money to. Um, that inspired other people, as I mentioned, from the cryptocurrency community. So now what I say, well, I'll say one other thing. So one other person um, formed the um, support that we need for phase three. And that was someone from the right wing. And that was a woman named Rebecca Mercer. And so for those of you who have studied the election, um, there's a lot of concern about a company called Cambridge Analytica that sort of scraped all this data off of Facebook and then uh, used it to target ads, maybe even telling some of the Russians how to target certain places. Um, they were the main funders of Trump and Steve Bannon. So the Mercers are responsible more than anybody else for Trump being elected. And Rebecca Mercer, um, it turned out, started feeling like she doesn't actually agree with everything Trump does. Thank goodness. Um, and we had a conversation. I was introduced to her by a human rights uh, activist. 
and during this conversation, it was about um, her interest in helping veterans and her interest in showing that she wasn't such a horrible person. And so we had this um, discussion, and then um, she said that um, she would be open to the talk of a million dollar donation, a quarter million a year for four years, but that just talking to me wasn't enough. She had to talk to some senior people in the military. And it turned out in 2010, after we published our first study with um, MDMA, mostly in women, but a few veterans, that um, I was contacted out of the blue, actually up in the blue, I was contacted by a big brigadier general flying in a military plane, calling me from the plane, and saying, I just uh, read your paper about MDMA for PTSD, what's going on here? And this was a woman, Lori Sutton, who was the highest ranking psychiatrist in the military, she started the Defense Center for Excellence at the Department of Defense and Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury, and she's become an ally over the years. Now, I'm a draft resistor. I was planning to go to jail instead of going to Vietnam, and so all these connections with the military are, are kind of astonishing for me and very healing. Um, I never was a conscientious objector because I didn't feel pacifism was the way to go, um, but this connection with Lori Sutton, who really cares compassionately about PTSD, um, she's now head of Veterans Affairs for the city of New York. And so Rebecca said, who could I talk to that would you know, be sort of from the establishment world? And I said, uh, Lori Sutton. And so uh, we had this three-way conversation. It took about 10 minutes. And afterwards, Rebecca said, okay, I'm in for a million. So now what I say is that we are bringing MDMA to the world as a gift from the psychedelic, burner, cryptocurrency, and right-wing <laughs> communities. <laughs> and so we are now at this place where we are trying to uh, globalize MDMA. We've been um, having a series of discussions with the European Medicines Agency. We just had a meeting in person in London, June 10th, and about uh, three weeks after that, we got the results. This process started actually in January, so we have um, a long process with the European Medicines Agency, and um, in the end, what they said is that they will accept the FDA data, and that they just want one study done in Europe, and that they're very interested in having geographical distribution throughout Europe, but they especially want us to work with refugees and migrants with PTSD, because they see that's one of the things that's tearing Europe apart. And so they're saying to us, see if maybe MDMA can be part of a solution to that. Now, it's difficult for us to work with people that are in a situation where they're being constantly re-traumatized, because that's not gonna, they're, they're just, it's not gonna work if people are not fundamentally safe. So we have to wait for refugees to have been uh, in, assimilated a little bit, and, and we're likely to get a bunch of refugees from Germany, from Portugal, from elsewhere. So it's roughly $9 million, we think, to make MDMA a medicine in, in, in Europe, and we've raised 400000 So we're looking for $8.6 and that's what we hope to raise within the next uh, four to six months. I mean, it's very ambitious. I don't know where it's going to come from. But um, there's a bunch of people here at Burning Man that write a check for that. <laughs> so we're trying to ask them. But um, we're, we're trying to do this all in a nonprofit context. And what we've done is, um, with the FDA, we have done a similar kind of a discussion to move to phase three 
that, that we've just done with EMA, and it's called Special Protocol Assessment. And what that means is you negotiate every aspect of your Phase three design and all the other information that they're going to want. And if you come to agreement, you get an agreement letter, which we got on July 28th. And what that means is the FDA is legally bound to approve MDMA if we get statistically significant evidence of efficacy from this design and no new safety problems come up. And since MDMA has been taken by tens of millions of people and hundreds of millions of doses for decades, we have a very clear idea of the safety profile of MDMA. And in fact, people have mostly taken MDMA in riskier circumstances than in our therapeutic setting. Mixed with other drugs, MDMA with alcohol, MDMA with cocaine, MDMA with who knows what else. And um, you know, two days in a row or three days in a row. And so we have a very clear idea of the safety profile. And so we have this special protocol assessment. So no matter what Trump and Sessions want to do, if we get, and they're not going to want to go after um, veterans anyway. Most people that have PTSD are not veterans. Most of them are women from sexual abuse or uh, people in abusive childhoods or accidents, different ways. We're focusing on the veterans, but they're not, you know, we're going to enroll more people who are not veterans in phase three than veterans. But the veterans have sort of been a way politically to kind of change people's minds. And so recently, I mean, in the last panel, George Greer talked about um, one of the things he was most surprised about, and it was the coverage that we've got on Fox News. So we've got incredibly good coverage on Fox News. And there's one in particular on May 12th, May 2nd, is when we published our paper about the results from um, the veterans, firefighters, and police officers study. And we gave an exclusive to the New York Times. And in the New York Times, they had one sentence about how we had a million dollars from Rebecca Mercer. Now, they also are major uh, investors in Breitbart as well. So yeah, the Breitbart and Cambridge Analytica and all this, yeah. So the Mercers and Breitbart, they're super connected. They're not the majority stockholders, they like to say, just minority, but connected to Breitbart, super connected to Fox News. And so the fact that the New York Times had this one sentence about Rebecca Mercer donating sort of gave the Fox News people the sense that they could report on this in a positive way. So the very next day, uh, there was this six-minute segment by um, Greg Gutfeld. There's a group called The Five, and Jesse Waters are the two host, main hosts. Uh, the woman who's now the uh, girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr., was on that panel, and they're all talking about how um, MDMA should be made into a medicine, and they're talking about how the strategy of working with veterans is a terrific strategy, and they're joking about how if we worked with IT workers, nobody would care, but you know, veterans, they care, and they, they talked about, uh, they sort of tried to remember who I was, and, and then it went to this discussion with the whole group. So it's, uh, if you do Greg Gutfeld, the five MDMA PTSD, you'll get to this segment. It's absolutely astonishing because then they started endorsing psilocybin for depression, ketamine for depression, marijuana for anything. So we have this total support from Fox News about what we're doing. And we also have all of the military websites, Stars and Stripes, all the military um, websites and newsletters are all sympathetic. So we have managed to build bipartisan support. So now what I want to do is sort of talk a little bit about some ethical issues 
and then we'll sort of open it up for discussion. So one of this ethical issues has to do with working with the military. So one of the psychiatrists that we work with in Europe um, is from Germany. And he's, um, you know, a lot of people in Europe see our military as a very aggressive force. Um, and, and it has been that in a lot of different ways. So this fellow was saying, um, would you give MDMA to concentration camp guards? You know, are you taking people who are uncomfortable from traumatizing people, from having killed innocent people or been part of this war, and then patching them up and then they go back to war? Is that what you're doing? And is that ethical? So first off, I'll say, and then I'll be also in the questions, curious what you all think about this, but first off, I'll say that every this criticism or potential criticism is due for every single medical advance. You know, everything that you want to do to help people survive, to help them, um, you know, be able to, to be healthy, sometimes we can help people go back to the battlefield. Is that a bad thing? Or... What, I'm, what I feel, actually, and what I see from these veterans, first off, it's not active duty soldiers, so we don't have that exact question. But secondly, we see that MDMA um, reverses uh, some of the training they got in the military. And I just heard a story yesterday from one of the vets that was in our study. I didn't hear it from him. I heard it from a therapist about how he felt that the military training actually changed his brain. And so here, this is the year I robot. And so he felt that the military training made them into robots and changed their brains and changed the way they operated to their emotions and that the MDMA was deprogramming the military programming to making them sensitive to their the emotional consequences of what they did. And so I don't think that we're making people um, heartless killers because then they go, it's like getting... Um, you go to confession and now it's okay and now I can go back and do whatever you want. It's not actually like that. And I also think that we have an obligation both to victims and to perpetrators to try to heal everybody. And I think that's more of a delicate and a difficult situation. But I think that we need to um, look at those people that are perpetrators are in many cases victims themselves at an earlier stage of their life and that we need to recognize that. I, I was, you know, um, one of the Israeli psychiatrists that we worked with at one point said, I understand MDMA, he'd never done it himself, it only works for victims, not for perpetrators. And that's where I realized that our training program wasn't really working well, and that it really is for everybody. So. I, I think this idea of um, working with the military, ethically, I feel that it's a good thing to do. And similarly, working with police, or working with other kind of first responders, or working with prison guards, or those kind of, or working with people who have sexually abused others. Um, to the extent they're willing to enter into our studies, I think that we should work with both victims and perpetrators. So that's one ethical issue. Um, one of the other ones has been uh, that we've gotten a lot of criticism for is accepting this donation from Rebecca Mercer. So for me, it was one of the most important things that we were able to do. And building bipartisan support is one of the crucial issues as we move forward to try to um, move beyond research to make these into medicines. And so people have said that 
you're trying to make her look good and she should look bad and she does all these bad things why and then everything is tainted and that that you so there's a whole thing in philanthropy it's called toxic donors and do you work with them or not uh, you know some of the people that have uh, you know ripped off people you know in the stock market and then do you take their money or, or different things like that so I feel like it's very important for us to build these bipartisan bridges. And so I, I think taking the money from Rebecca Mercer was not only um, you know, helpful for us, but people don't recognize that it's a two-way conversation, that maybe she will learn something from our work, and maybe that will change some of her ideas. People are worried that now we're gonna be um, you know, controlled by Rebecca Mercer and we're going to be having to do things. But the only condition that she put on the money was that it go to veterans. There's been other donors that have, um, the, the more pressure that I've actually received from donors has been from left-wing donors who say, we're starting to make MDMA to a medicine, but you're talking about the need to legalize drugs. You're talking about, so the fundamental point I'll make here is that why I'm doing this, why I think it's so important that we mainstream psychedelics is beyond medicine. It's that we need to have millions and millions of people have a spiritual connection so that they can break through these us-them barriers and then they can have compassion for the other and see that we're all connected. That's the fundamental theory of change. I think we saw that a lot in the 60s, that people were motivated by psychedelics and we're able then to participate in opposing the Vietnam War and working on the environmental movement, the women's rights movement, civil rights movement. There is this connection, I think, between this mystical experience, the sense of spirituality, and political outcomes. And there's actually been a study recently at the London College with uh, Robin Card Harris, and he's actually demonstrated that there's a correlation between the mystical experience, nature-relatedness, progressive views and anti-authoritarian views. Now, all of this is mediated by the context. So it's not that you take the drug and you automatically have these things. You can take the drug and be worse off. But if you take the drug in a supportive therapeutic setting, you touch into some of these experiences, it has a very strong, um, I think, political implications, and that's why I'm doing it. And this, for me, was confirmed in 1983 by the Assistant Secretary General of the UN, Robert Mueller. I talk about him a lot. He wrote this book called New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality, which I read in 83. And his theory is that we have the United Nations to mediate conflicts between countries, but a lot of those conflicts are actually religious-based. And that what we need to do is help all these fundamentalists and all these different religions relax a little bit. And we, we need a bit of this global spirituality for them to realize that religions are like languages. We have all these different languages. They're all about essentially communicating with each other. Each language has a different flavor, different words for things. But a full understanding, a mystical understanding of religion is that they're all basically coming from the same place. We have different symbols, different cultural contexts, but we don't need to be so rigid and fundamentalist about it. And so that was the thesis of this of this book. And so I was an undergraduate at the time. I wrote him a letter. I felt like I was a, like a sailor on a, uh, a shipwrecked sailor on a deserted island, and I put a little note in a bottle, and I sent it off into the universe, and I sent it to him, and he actually wrote me back. And then he said, you know, I said, you, you didn't say anything about psychedelics in your book. 
And uh, I said, psychedelics, can, whether you consider them real or similar to, they're a way to understand spirituality, and would you help us bring back psychedelic research? And he actually said, yes, he would help. And he believed in that theory of change, and then he referred me to a bunch of mystics in different religions. And reading between the lines, I heard him say, send them all MDMA. <laughs> Which um, I then did. <laughs> then they would report back to him. Uh, Roman Catholic monks who took MDMA in a monastery, Zen Buddhists who took it in Zen meditation retreats, um, Jewish rabbis who took it and compared MDMA to the Sabbath. Um, so anyway, that's the theory of change, is that we need widespread mass mental health, global spirituality, and that you know when we think about Trump and we think about what you know what if we gave MDMA to Trump? <laughs> For example, um, I don't think it would work because it, you have to want to change. And our whole approach is to empower people to change themselves, to heal themselves. That's the essence of this inner directed method, that we are helping people to marshal their own inner resources to heal themselves. And of the eight-hour session, roughly four hours on average, more or less. People's eyes are closed, they're listening to music, and they're having incredible poetic metaphors and imagery about their own inner conflicts. It, it's astonishing how metaphorical people are in the way they tell themselves stories about what's going on with their life. And, you know, one of the veterans had this story of the, the he, he was there for rage. He, he never hit his wife, but he threw stuff at her. He was flying off the handle all the time. And he had this idea of the warrior part of himself was locked in a cage inside of him. And was actually had reached out with one arm with a knife and it stabbed him in the side. That he was in battle with this warrior part of himself that was uncontrollable and he had to keep it under control. And under the influence of MDMA, he realized that that warrior self had kept him alive, that that was an ally, that was part of his patriotism, that that, that was something he had to make friends with. And they had this whole imagery of letting this... Um, wild animal out of the cage and becoming friends. So I mean, people are having these incredible metaphors of while they're going through healing, but roughly four hours is speaking to the therapist, roughly four hours is having points where people heal themselves. And so this is this concept that if we were to give it to Trump, if he didn't really want to deal with what was going on, um, he, he wouldn't be healed. And I saw that in a sad way, I'll say, with John Lilly. And so... Does any, who knows who John Lilly is? Somebody else? Okay. He, he invented the flotation tank. And in the 50s and 60s, and he was the one that started about dolphin intelligence, and he was an early um, LSD researcher, paid for by the Navy. He actually did work with flotation tanks, doing LSD inside the flotation tank. And, and his book was called Programming and Metaprogramming of the Human Biocomputer. And when psychedelics got criminalized, Sadly, he was so ahead of his time and impatient that he just retreated into ketamine addiction. And I had an opportunity to work with him later in his life with MDMA for a therapeutic purpose. And he sort of came into his body and saw all the abscesses that he had where he was injecting himself with ketamine. And, and it was so difficult for him that he didn't really want to deal with it. And so he sort of withdrew again. So I learned from that that it's not about just creating a safe space giving people MDMA, they have to have the courage to change. And if they don't want to do that, they won't. And so it's not about 
changing Trump, but what about the millions and millions of people who have given away their power to Trump, who have been motivated by fears and anxieties and have given away their power? So I think the ultimate solution for a more peaceful planet is going to be anchoring this sort of global spirituality in millions and billions of people so that they don't give away. Because there will always be people who want to be dictators, who won't want to change. We can never really end all that, but we can end, hopefully, this idea of um, people giving away their power by helping them process their own fears and anxieties. And that means going beyond medicine, going beyond religion to drug legalization and to a post-prohibition world. Zendo here is about building a model for a post-prohibition world. So that here we have, you know, the, 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 one of the main reasons for the, the, the main reason for the backlash of the 60s was um, people getting involved with political change movements and the identification of LSD with counterculture. Nixon said that Leary was the most dangerous man in America. And so I think that was people having this mystical, the spiritual sense and then realizing, why do I want to kill these Vietnamese? Why do I want to trash the environment? You know, so I think it was psychedelics going right that caused this conflict with the society so rigid. Now, 50 years later, we're in a much different position. The society has integrated much of the psychedelic vision of the 60s. So people at that time, um, you, know, you remember the Maharishi who came with uh, meditation with TM. He was a strange, weird foreign import. And now, you know, they teach meditation to children in schools as part of mindfulness. So we've integrated that. Um, you know, foreign religions, uh, you know, yoga was considered to be, it was gonna convert people to uh, a different kind of religion. Now every YMCA has yoga classes. We, we didn't really talk about death in the 60s. The first hospice was until 1974. And so now we have over um, 6,000 hospices. Um, birth, women were tranquilized and men were not allowed in the delivery room for a lot of births. Now we have birthing centers. So we've changed our attitude towards birth, towards death, towards spirituality, uh, towards the environment, and now the last thing from that is to integrate is the psychedelics. And so the main reason for a backlash now would be parents worried about their kids, worried about their family members. And a lot of that will come from going to uh, festivals and then taking psychedelics and not being prepared for the depth of the experience and then coming off coming back home worse off so in 2003 we started the zendo project or we started not we didn't call it the zendo project but we started coming here to burning man to offer therapy we brought therapists who were trained in psychedelics to help people with difficult trips and that has evolved from 2003 to now where we have um, over 300 volunteers that staff the zendo 24 7 it's on the esplanade at 540 Five and E. It's right out in the open. It's in the greeter package. And last year we had um, over 660 people came for support, sometimes while they were tripping, sometimes afterwards trying to integrate it. And so the Zendo project is really part of a model to demonstrate how do we move for a post-prohibition world. Because when adults are free to do these drugs without worry about the police, um, people will still get into trouble. And so we can provide these support systems. So anyway, I've been getting a fair amount of criticism from people for doing that, for talking about prohibition, but I think it actually makes it more likely we'll be able to make it into a medicine than less likely, because it takes away some of the fear of where we might go. 
So the other um, last sort of ethical issue, I'll, um, there's two more. One is uh, we've been getting criticism recently for there's a for-profit and a non-profit group that's developing psilocybin into a medicine. And our view as a non-profit that we have the ability to give tax deductions to people who give us donations. We have an obligation to the public to be transparent, to give out all of our information, and to help everybody, whether that's for-profit or non-profit. And so that's our fundamental view. And, and so we've been getting a lot of criticism for accepting, for sharing all of our FDA regulatory documents and all of the information we know about the drug development system with this for-profit company called Compass. And there's a non-profit company called USONA. So my view of this is that um, we should celebrate the fact that for-profit companies are coming into this because that means we have succeeded. For the last 32 years of MAPS, it only makes sense for the last year or so for for-profit people to come because we've changed the political dynamics, we've changed the dynamics with the regulatory systems, and so now it can make sense for investors. Um, and so I, I think that makes sense. And also, though, the for-profit is not going to be able to block the non-profit. We will have the non-profit, the head of the non-profit, um, USONA, Bill Litton, is here camping with us. And so it's their view that whatever the for-profit does, it's not going to block them from what they do. And so I think it's really good for us. But there's some people that are anti, you know, worried about uh, what they might charge. Um, for those of you who watch about medical marijuana, um, the FDA just approved a drug called Epidiolex, which is CBD for childhood epilepsy. It just got approved. Um, it's, it's, um, the, the pharmaceutical company is charging $32,500 a year for stuff you can get for a couple thousand dollars from your local neighborhood dispensary. But it's going to be covered by insurance. They did on all the research. So, you know, there are problems with for-profit drug development. But anyway, I think we should help everybody, and that's what we've been doing. The, the final ethical issue um, has to do with um, where we bring MDMA. And so in September, I'm going to China with one of um, our therapists and the leader of our clinical team. And what has happened is that um, this young um, Chinese uh, internet entrepreneur uh, made hundreds of millions of dollars, left China, lives in San Francisco, and wants to bring MDMA back to, to China. And he says that his parents and his parents' generation all have PTSD from the Cultural Revolution, and that you can't say that in China. You have to talk about PTSD from natural disasters or other things, but that he wants to try to bring the healing potential of MDMA to China. And he thinks, though, that the only way to do it is to start with the Chinese military psychiatrists and the Chinese civilian psychiatrists there as well. So we have this, so when I think about um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing to try to bring MDMA to the Chinese military psychiatrists, it turns out that the Israeli um, principal investigator was the chief psychiatrist for the Israeli Defense Forces. He's one of the therapists coming to Israel with us. That the fellow who's uh, with us camping now, who's going to coordinate our research in Europe, he is the um, as I mentioned, he's the chief psychiatrist for the Dutch Ministry of Defense in England we're working with the chief psychiatrist for the British military, so that there's that's where a lot of the PTSD is located and that's where a lot of the PTSD researchers are located 
And so there is this um, sense that I have that, um, you know, moving into an authoritarian country, we all know that the CIA and MKUltra, where they used psychedelics for mind control, they tried to use them for brainwashing, things like that. Um, that developed into such scandal that, it, that um, as far as we can tell, that's not happening anymore. Um, and that um, these drugs can be misused. But I think fundamentally, MDMA helps you, when you take it, um, it helps you feel solid in yourself, it reduces your pain threshold, I mean, it increases your pain threshold, so you, you don't feel pain as much. And if you're a, sort of a, a true believer, I think it will strengthen your will, ability to resist anything. So the question is, in this trade-off, if you know, so much of the governments are motivated by people who are motivated by their trauma. They're, they're, so it's this multi-generational trauma that causes the fear of the other. So my view is that um, I think on balance it's a good thing for us to go to China to try to um, influence the Chinese therapists to try to influence MDMA. And I think if there's any pressure from the Chinese government from what we've seen so far, it's going to be to limit the spread of it rather than to take it over and do in other ways. So I think there are ethical issues as we go forward, and we need to be um, careful about them because we have a chance that we have not had in 50 years, and it's a tremendous opportunity. And for those of you that are interested in uh, careers, for example, in um, psychedelic psychotherapy, now is the first time that um, that's a realistic thing. And to give you a sense of how realistic it is, and then, then I'll be done with this talk and have questions, is that we anticipate that MDMA is going to be approved in 2021 <coughs> in the United States. Um, depending on the fundraising, it could be that time, or it could be six months or a year later, or whatever, it'll be approved 2021, 2022 in Europe. But there's a program that the FDA has called Expanded Access. And the, the Republicans, uh, in their anti-deregulation efforts, anti-regulation, deregulation, they just passed a bill called Right to Try. And Right to Try means, and Trump just signed this bill about a month and a half ago. So Right to Try means that if you have, <coughs> if you have a condition for which the available medicines have not worked, and there's a drug that's being studied for that condition, you should have a right to try that drug before it's approved, at your own risk, because you still don't know about the full safety of it, and at your own cost. You should be able to pay for the drug, pay for the therapy, whatever, and you should get it outside, simultaneous, actually, before the drug is approved as a medicine. So the FDA doesn't particularly like right to try because it cuts them out of the process. People negotiate directly with pharmaceutical companies, and the agreement is that whatever happens in this compassionate use, right to try, the FDA won't review that data for safety and efficacy. So the pharmaceutical companies aren't that worried about making it available. The FDA has a program called Expanded Access, which is similar to right to try, but it's a little bit more paperwork and a, a little bit more data. So we're gonna go the Expanded Access route. And so what that means is that next summer, We've already had meetings with FDA and DEA about this because everybody who works in an expanded access site, it's still a Schedule One drug before it's a medicine, and they'll need DEA Schedule One licenses. But we anticipate next summer, the end of next summer, we're going to be starting expanded access clinics. 
so that we're going to be training therapists for expanded access. So actually, psychedelic psychotherapy, legally, where patients are coming in to pay for treatment, is going to start in one year from now. only for PTSD, it's only for treatment-resistant PTSD, but it can be expanded to, like, for example, we did the study with autistic adults with social anxiety. We could end up having expanded access for social anxiety. We did a study with end-of-life, uh, people with anxiety about end-of-life with MDMA, that was helpful. We could get expanded access for that. But we have limited resources, we're focusing on PTSD, but um, the good news is that um, Everything seems to be pointing in the direction of success. Um, and I think it's um, incumbent upon us to think as carefully as we can about the ethical issues, to proceed uh, very carefully. And if so, I, I think we will be able to embed psychedelics in our culture. And then what will happen is from 2021 or so um, to 2031, we'll be able to lay out um, and spread thousands of psychedelic clinics throughout America and throughout the world. There's 14,500 drug abuse treatment centers. Psychedelics would be very helpful for the treatment of addiction. Um, there's 6,000, as I said, hospice centers. But I think there'll be specialized clinics where people will go to get psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, whatever drugs get further approved. These will, and people, there'll be a new profession, a new professional organization to be certified to be a psychedelic therapist with therapists cross-trained in all these different drugs. And I think after we have about 10 or 15 years of that, the population of America will be ready to um, fully legalize psychedelics and all other drugs will move to. A, so our, our target date for that is 2035, or a post-prohibition world. I hope that we'll all be around to see if my predictions are accurate. Hopefully I'm too pessimistic. But I think that that's the track we're on. And I think it's not gonna be um, any day too late, too soon because we are facing such environmental crisis, such crisis of weaponry, and our emotions are trapping us. This trauma of multi-generation is trapping us. And so I'm, we're hoping that the mainstream psychedelics will make a contribution to helping the human species survive and thrive. That's a really crucial question because in, in psychotherapy, one of the main issues is how do you match the patient to the right kind of therapy? 
what is that crossover? And, and that's what you want to figure out. Now, one way people have talked about doing that is with biomarkers. So maybe there are some genetic or physiological conditions that will lead some people to be able to, um, first off, be resilient to trauma, or if they have PTSD, be able to recover more likely. So, it, so far, there's been no real reliable biomarkers. We know a little bit about what changes before and after treatment with the reduction of activity in the amygdala, um, but um, it, it, part of it is whether people have a safe place while they're doing this deep work, so I'd, I'd add that, that people need to be safe to process all the pain and the trauma, and if they're continually re-traumatized, that's going to be an issue. Um, one of the things that the FDA has talked about is that um, once we give this three sessions, you know, how long do we wait? How many times can people go through that? And so they've not yet said about setting an upper limit, but it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or 12, something like that. So if 10 or 12 MDMA sessions have not helped somebody overcome their PTSD, more is not going to be better. Um, but I'd say that is one of the, you know, who are the responders, who are the non-responders? Um, mostly, I think it is those factors, dissociation and the courage. Um, oh, one other thing is that we ask people to taper off all of their SSRIs. And so when they go into the study, they, they have to give up all their psychiatric medicines. And so we tell people, initially what's happening is it's going to be made worse. I mean, your symptoms are coming to the surface rather than suppressing the symptoms. And so we want you to realize that while it may be getting harder, that's actually a good thing because you're bringing things up. And so we have found that there is a, seems to be a relationship between the length of time people have withdrawn from SSRIs and how well they get. So that SSRIs also change your brain, change your processing, and they, they operate on the serotonin system. And so we want uh, more and more time now so it's five half-lives of whatever drug that you're on, plus two weeks. And so the longer it is, so that, that seems to be another factor. Um, what is your experience with, uh, um, your experience in a clinical setting with regards to some of the known negative after effects, like the uh, serotonin depletion, loss of magic, especially if people are having like 12 lifetime doses, 12 sessions, yeah. uh, Tuesday blues. How do you guys work with or mitigate, or what's your experience with that in a clinical setting? Yeah, well, this Tuesday blues idea, the irony there is that we track that very carefully because, because yeah, all the concerns that people have about the problems from recreational use, they're applying to us for clinical use. But we find that these Tuesday blues, the low mood, the depression, that it's more prevalent in the control group than in the MDMA group. <laughs> and the, the, the reason we think that is, is because that in the control group, we're asking them to confront their PTSD, but without the support of the MDMA to reduce their fear. And it just unsettles them. And so, here they are trying to bring it to the surface. They've never been able to deal with it before. So one of the things the FDA has said, though, is they want us to study MDMA by itself and really understand what the risks are. So I think what makes us able to not have this problem with the Tuesday blues or this feeling of serotonin depletion, so we don't give 5-HTP, we don't give any treatments afterwards, is that we do the MDMA during the day, not during the night. 
and people then can sleep mostly that night. Occasionally we will give people medicines to sleep. Then we tell them the second day, you're gonna be tired, but don't do anything about that. Don't do anything, don't have responsibilities, don't have appointments. Go into that tiredness and also use that to integrate what happened the day before. And that's really the anchor where people are able to say, here's the second day, I don't have to go to work, I didn't dance all night, I can process the feelings. Now there are cases where people are having a very difficult time throughout you know, weeks sometimes after the first MDMA experience. And so we can um, add extra integrative therapy sessions. We, we have therapists sometimes go back at night to talk to people. We just say people, do not tranquilize yourself. We don't tranquilize, but we say work with us. And so there are cases where we provide extra therapy when needed and that's called a protocol deviation, so we keep track of all of that. We have what's in the protocol and then what's extra. And so um, I do believe that a lot of people have found that you take 5-HTP after you take MDMA. It seems to make it a little bit easier. But in the therapy and the research, we don't do any of that. Hi, Dr. Duffin. Uh, thank you for what you do. I am a psychiatry resident at Hopkins, very interested in this area. And my question is, uh, once it's approved by the FDA, what is your ideal in terms of regulation? For example, should there be off-label prescriptions? Who gets licensed to give this and how? Okay, great question. Oh, by the way, where are you studying psychiatry? At Hopkins. Oh, oh, okay, great. Are you part of any of them? Do you hope to be, or will you be able to be part of the psilocybin project? So, hope to be. All right, well, so this is a policy question. That's what I studied at the Kennedy School. Um, and so what the, the, the FDA, generally, when they approve a drug, anybody can prescribe it for anything. Any doctor can prescribe it for anything. And there's very minimal additional policies. What happened um, to start to change that was thalidomide. So in the 60s, thalidomide um, was uh, medicine in Europe for morning sickness, and it caused terrible birth defects. And the, the pharmaceutical company was trying to bring thalidomide to the US. And there was a woman, Frances Kelsey, who's the only person at the FDA to ever win the Presidential Medal of Honor, and she won it for being suspicious about the safety profile of thalidomide, and she blocked thalidomide from becoming a medicine in the US, and she probably saved you know, tens of thousands of birth defects before they figured out the connection. Um, so decades later, thalidomide became a medicine. It constricts blood vessels, it's good for leprosy, it's good for certain kinds of cancer. So what the FDA did is they created a whole set of regulatory policies to control thalidomide to make sure that there would be no more birth defects. So they have what's called a patient registry. Everybody that gets thalidomide is listed on a patient registry. And they track whether there's any birth defects. There is an education that goes to the pharmacist. The pharmacist has to be educated. The physicians who prescribe it have to read some stuff. And there's a brochure that's given to the patients. And under those conditions, they've let thalidomide become a mess. That process of figuring out how to adjust the policies for the drug is now ratified in what's called the REMS, which is Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. And so what we're proposing and what it looks like both FDA and DEA are going to agree on is that once MDMA becomes a medicine, and this will be true for psilocybin as well, 
the drug is not safe or effective by itself. It's psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So we're proposing that the only people that are able to prescribe it or to be actually with patients doing the therapy will have gone through our training program so that they know the therapy that has been um, used along with the MDMA. And that these drugs will never be take-home medicines. They will only be administered in psychedelic clinics under direct supervision. So those are the two main aspects of how we think that they'll be regulated. The, the question that you asked was also about off-label prescription. So in 1986, Marinol, the oral THC pill became a medicine. It was the first medicine from cannabis. And there had been all these talks in the 70s and 80s about chemotherapy and how marijuana, smoke marijuana, helps people with the nausea from cancer chemotherapy and it can contribute to an appetite. And the government didn't want to approve marijuana. This is again during Nancy Reagan, just say no, escalation of the drug war. But they were willing to approve the oral THC pill which does not work as well as marijuana. But the DEA put a notice in the Federal Register that said that there would be no off-label prescription for uh, the oral THC pill because it was a Schedule One drug. And luckily, the pharmaceutical, not luckily, but many drugs, around a third of the prescriptions are off-label. Which means they're being prescribed for conditions that they weren't approved for or circumstances they weren't approved for. So. Often it's um, drugs that were studied in adults but have never studied in children, but they're being prescribed in children. That's why we have to do pediatric studies with MDMA. The FDA is trying to crack down on that and require studies in pediatric population. But the Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association, um, the AMA, all these different groups uh, protested the DEA, and the DEA had to withdraw that. So there is off-label prescription even for drugs that have come from Schedule One. Now, what we're saying also is that the only people that can prescribe this are people that we have trained in our method. Eventually, there'll be other people training them as well. But what we're saying is that once they know our method, they know how the drug was used, they can innovate, and they don't need to keep using our method. They can modify it in any number of different ways, blend it with any other therapies, whatever, and the, the problem of off-label prescription, so that counts as off-label if you use it for, in a different therapeutic method. But the real question is about all sorts of other conditions. And so um, what I wanted to do was to um, have a patient registry and then have every time a, a doctor would prescribe MDMA would be a little form to say what it was prescribed for. So we would keep track of all the off-label prescriptions and eventually we'd say, oh, look at all this use, now let's study that. And try to make, because the thing about off-label prescription is that insurance will not cover it. That's a big issue for us because most of the people who are traumatized come from populations that have the least resources to pay for treatment. So there's a big equity issue. So it's very important that we get this covered by insurance. So insurance will only cover what you've studied it for. They won't um, cover off-label uses. The other thing is that um, in order to defend yourself against medical malpractice, you have to have what's called a significant minority of your peers 
to support what you're doing. So for every off-label use, if there's a, a significant minority of your peers, which means maybe um, some prominent psychiatrists think it's okay to give MDMA for OCD, then you could, so, so there will be off-label prescription, but the pharmaceutical companies are prohibited from actually um, encouraging or even knowing, tracking off-label prescription. So we were told, don't do the patient registry, don't ask the doctors to tell you what they're prescribing it for when it's off-label, but just be blind to that and try to think on your own what other uses that it could be used for. So our goal is make MDMA into a medicine for PTSD, then we will sell it for a profit through the MAPS Benefit Corporation, which, because selling MDMA for a profit is taxable, so we've created this benefit corp where we maximize public benefit, not profit, and we're working with ethicists at UPenn to articulate a whole series of uh, metrics to evaluate the public benefit, and then the public benefit corporation is for profit, but it's owned 100% by the nonprofit. So whatever profits are made are gonna go for other research. So that's our goal is to try to get money from selling MDMA for PTSD and study all these off-label prescriptions. But once MDMA is a medicine, um, as long as you've been through our training program, then you can use it in any way for any condition. But I do think that um, we wanna roll this out. So medicalization, is not the same as legalization. We see from medical marijuana that in 1996, Arizona and California passed the first um, medical marijuana laws, and now 22 years later, there's 60% um, of the American public is in favor of marijuana legalization for all uses. So medicalization will lead to legalization, uh, but we don't wanna, but for medicalization, it isn't legalization. I feel fine having it highly controlled. So this is where we get pushback from libertarians, who are a lot of our donors, like all these Bitcoin people tend to be libertarians. And they're like, why are you suggesting that it's only under direct supervision, only for certain things? So um, I think we need to work with the system, work on incremental change, and part of that is all these limitations for the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. Dr. Dublin, another follow-up question. Um, thank you again for all that you do on behalf of humanity. Um, what would somebody do if they wanted to get involved and uh, get trained by you and set up a clinic? Well, that's a very good question. So um, right now we have 5,000 therapists on a, waiting, on a list to be notified when we want to start our training program. So our... Okay. Um, so the first thing to do is to um, sign up on our website to be notified for when we open up training opportunities. So this is the key bottleneck for us. Um, and it, it's very uh, challenging. Now, I mean, it's been so easy for a lot of MAPS for the 32 years. Most of MAPS was just asking for permission to do stuff and getting rejected. And so that wasn't that hard. Uh, now we're sort of seeing success and people are saying, how are you gonna scale up? And the most important challenge for us now is scaling up therapists. But we only have four trainers so far. So we're starting new programs to train more trainers. So the first thing is sign up on the website. We're trying to put more and more of what we do on the website. There's also the treatment manual that describes our treatment approach, which is for free on the website under the MDMA page at the bottom, so read that. And we're starting to think that we can train um, 
Our, our trainings can be the maximum of 60 people at a time. So we're going to have a training for 60 people in Europe at the end of September. Hopefully we'll have a training in November in Colombia for Colombia, Chile, and Argentina, South American therapists. In the, the end of um, January, February, we're going to have a training in Israel. Uh, the Ministry of Health has given us um, 50 people can now take MDMA on a compassionate basis and expanded access while we move through phase three. So we're going to train a bunch more therapists for that. And then we're going to come back to the U.S., and start training for expanded access. The first training is going to be in March. We're going to have one every two months. And we're going to try to pick people who are um, geographically distributed in areas where we don't already have phase three studies so we can you know, reach more people. And you'll have to start building a team. So if you um, apply on the website, um, and you can write to uh, Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, Shannon at mapsbcorp.com, we have kind of a list of things to do to prepare to have an expanded access site. So you have to have a doctor. So if you're a therapist, you have to have a doctor because the DEA only gives Schedule One licenses to doctors. You have to have a facility that's capable of having overnight stays. Um, ideally, you would have a team. You would have two male-female teams at least so that you can learn from each other as you start treating it. And um, you'll have to start thinking about what the fees are going to be charged. Is there money that uh, we can get from places to subsidize treatments for people who can't afford it? But the key thing is that we don't want there to be a backlash because people were treated in ways that were um, not uh, completely ethical or not completely effective. So our pressure is to, to – there's 8 million people with PTSD in America, roughly. So how do we ever possibly do that? Um, it's going to take us a very long time to try to figure out how to expand our training program. But we anticipate thousands and thousands of therapists. And so for now, the best way, one of the best ways is to volunteer to work at Zendo. So we use Zendo to train therapists because you've got a flow of people coming in with all different drugs uh, in different combinations. And working with them to try to help them turn that into something productive is one of the best trainings. So, and we have Zendo that works at other events all over the place. <laughs> so volunteer for Zendo. And I think really that, um, it's a tricky thing for me to say, but I think practice with your friends. And you know, <laughs> practice with other people. Um, you know, the MDMA does a lot of the work. And so you can create a safe space and you can learn with people who are suffering different things, and we're all suffering something. We might not have a clinical diagnosis, but I'd say practice with your friends and practice with people that are suffering and, and learn that way. Um, and then, you know, come out of the closet to the extent that you can to educate people so that it becomes less stigmatized. And hopefully we will have eventually training programs that you could be part of you know, without waiting, you know, mega multi multi years. So that that's the best way to do it. Hi. Um, so you mentioned at some point that it works the treatment works better with women than men. Did they get oh, that oh, right? Oh. No, that was the SSRIs. Oh. So the, the prescription medications for PTSD work better in women than in men. Oh, okay. But no, MDMA um, fortunately seems to work well in men as well as women, so we're you know, so there's hope for us guys. I mean, the question is, you know, are women closer to their emotions? And that's why we think SSRIs work a little bit better for women than men. 
but they have kind of a milder effect. Um, and, and people have also asked, do you change the doses so that women get a lower dose than men? They tend to weigh less, you know, you know, so that would be, do you dose by milligram per kilogram? Well, we don't do that. And it, it seems like um, the, the thing people have often said about the women is that often many of them have complex PTSD from, you know, childhood, multiple incidents. And so it, it does work well with complex PTSD or war PTSD. Um, I guess the other question is, are women, you know, better therapists than men? So I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but I do think that this idea of a male-female team is pretty incredible to see it in motion. And for some reason, many of our male-female teams are married or are romantically involved. I didn't think it would develop that way, but I, I mentioned we have four trainers. They happen to be two married couples. So more and more, it turns out that these uh, male-female teams are in a romantic relationship. Because it's kind of a very loving situation to be there nurturing somebody who's trying to go through painful stuff. Um, so they have to have a really good relationship, even if they're not. Hi, Rick. Um, I wanted to reiterate my gratitude and thanks again for everything. Um, I was curious about the inclusion of holotropic breathwork in the training of the therapists. Uh, well, so holotropic breathwork, again, is hyperventilation that um, reduces your defenses and stuff comes to the surface. Holotropic breathwork is more like LSD than it is like MDMA. But it is, it's legal. And so most of the therapists, or I'd say many of the therapists that we've worked with, have been trained by Stan and Christina Groff in the holotropic breathwork. So I was trained in that from 88 to 91. Um, Michael Midover and Andy Midover, who are the, our lead therapists, have been trained in the breathwork. Um, and so we have used holotropic breathwork in the middle of the training because more and more now we're working with people who are traditional therapists and psychiatrists who don't have a psychedelic background. And so um, we do use holotropic breath work to try to help people learn about letting go. That's, that was before we got, and even still more recently we do that. Many underground psychedelic therapists start with um, a conversation with people to get to know them. Then they do holotropic breath work to see how they respond and then they move to the psychedelics. So I think holotropic breathwork is a really good way to help train therapists in their own process of letting go. And the fact that it's harder than MDMA is actually good in the training of therapists because you see how scared you are about letting go. You don't know what's coming up and, and you don't have the safety uh, reduction of fear from MDMA that you, you don't get that with the breathwork. So it requires a little bit more courage, you could say, in the breathwork. So it, it's been a very effective tool for us um, in the training of therapists. And we're likely to continue using it that way. Um, we don't use it in the treatment. And I'll say that the reason that we don't is that we only want to have one intervention at a time. And so the FDA would not look kindly on, oh, you're doing this and that. Well, what is the contributor to people getting better? So we don't use holotropic breathwork in the treatment, even though in underground settings, people often do go through a series of breathwork before they do the psychedelics. Yeah. 
And I would say back about this post-approval. Post-approval, once it's a prescription medicine, I think holotropic breath work will be used a lot before people start with MDMA for PTSD. Hi, thanks for everything that you're doing to advance society as well. Um, a few friends and I get together a few times a year. And we call it communion. <laughs> um, getting to the basis of what we're doing. Sometimes we enter in with intentions, what we want to resolve at the time. Sometimes we just enter in and deal with what comes up. Have you noticed any difference in in those kinds of aspects, going in with an intention of, of I want to resolve what, whatever my issue is with this, as opposed to just whatever bubbles to the surface? Well, the, the approach that we use is a little bit of a combination of that. So it's important to have intentions, and I think these intentions are um, focusing, and, and they help your psyche try to, you know, and, and they mobilize energy. But once the session starts, we say throw away those intentions and then just deal with whatever comes up. And that's this idea of this inner healing intelligence and the inner healer that somehow or other, you may have an intention of one thing and before you know it, you're dealing with something completely different and maybe that's actually what you needed to deal with. So I think that it's very good as part of the preparation to use intentions. We, we say, we have an agreement with the people and we say, if during the MDMA session you don't start talking about the trauma, at some point we will bring it up. Because it's our view that you have to speak about the trauma, you have to reprocess it in order to heal from PTSD. And so we sort of set that intention ahead of time. At some point, you know, if you don't talk about it, we'll ask you some questions about the trauma. But because we have this interdirected of approach and an eight-hour session and we're quite patient we've never actually had to do that people will eventually gravitate toward that but some people go to happy memories first or do a mystical spiritual sense of connection or feeling love and then they'll go to the trauma so all different ways so i think if you hold on to the intention while you're having the experience you're limiting the experience to your conscious mind and to what you thought was you needed to work on so it's sort of a combination. Have the intentions and then let it go and then see what comes up. Hi, Rick. So the news of the efficacy of psychedelics is moving a lot faster than the therapeutic capacity yeah. <laughs> for yes, studying. And I've had a lot of friends ask me recently about self-medicating. Yeah. And I'm in an area of the country that doesn't have these kind of studies happening. So I'm wondering what you would tell people about self-medicating with these substances. All right, well, um, let me tell you what happened to me last year at Burning Man. <laughs> um, so this guy comes up to me, and he gives me a hug, and he says, you saved my life. And I was like, well, what did I do? And he said, well, I'm a veteran, and I had PTSD, and I was feeling suicidal and terrible, and I heard about your study, but I wasn't able to get in your study, and I went to your website and I saw that you posted your treatment manual and I read it. And um, I found a friend and I found MDMA and I took it and now I feel better. <laughs> so, um, I, I think that um, it's always self-medication in a sense that when we think of, so the, one of the concerns I have about shamanism is that you tend to have the shaman as the one that heals you. Sometimes the shaman is the only one that takes the drug. And they go into a different state and they try to do, 
you know, divination, different things to heal you, and they have, you know, feathers, and they have all different kind of things. But there's a power dynamic that's a little bit concerning in some shamanistic settings where they're the healer. I mean, this is true with all doctors and all therapists, too. It's like, who's really doing the work? And so our understanding of it is that people are always the ones that heal themselves. And we're trying to create a context for them to do that. But that we're not responsible for healing them. We're responsible for creating an environment where they can heal themselves. So it's always self-medication, in a sense. So um, I think it's very important, though, for people to do it in a safe way, to be willing to... um, have the full range of experiences not to do it alone so i would say you can self-medicate but do not do it by yourself you know have a buddy have somebody there that's the mediator between you and the outside world and don't really think about it as necessarily one dose miracle cure and um, be willing to um, give yourself a couple days particularly to integrate what happened and um, often um, you know it's good to start out with smaller doses just to see if it agrees with you but you know we're trying to um, to make it available as many tools as possible the hardest thing about self-medicating is knowing that you got a pure drug so there is one company in America that is called drug detection lab that has a license from the DEA to accept anonymous samples of drugs and then you put in a code name, and then you contact them, and then you find out what it was. So it's called Drug Detection Lab in Sacramento. And the Dance Safe and Arrowhead and MAP started an ecstasy pill testing program, and we did it with them, with Drug Detection Lab. So I'd say that's very important, because when you get into these difficult emotional states, they're, they're sometimes difficult. And if you're worried, oh my God, did I poison myself? What did I really take? You know, am I going to get the support I thought I would get? Maybe it's not really MDMA. That complicates things a lot. So I'd say, you know, really make sure that you have confidence that it's a pure drug. Um, And it's a risk because the more severe the situation, the more support people need. So the tendency, like even with um, self-medication, the fact that in our therapy setting we have overnight stays. You might say, oh, I'll spend the day with you, and then the experience is over, and then the friend goes away, and they're left on their own all night, and things could go really bad. So I'd say you need an even stronger and longer context, safe context, when people are going to try to self-medicate. But that, um, I I think, starting low doses, how are we going to reach all these 8 million people? It's going to be a lot of this self-medication. You know, I wish there were more set centers and all set up and we made... But but the, the challenge for us is not to grow too fast either. <laughs> to not to surrender quality, to just have massive numbers of therapists because that would also lead to backlash. Um, so here's another story that's really, really hard. Is um, um, This is now 10 years ago. This fellow contacted me and he said... Um, I'm struggling, I need an underground therapist, you know, I want to work with psychedelics, I'm very depressed. And um, I referred him to my therapist, actually, who I knew did not do underground work, but I thought was a great therapist. And I thought, at least we can try this. So um, he had months of therapy with my therapist, and then he called me up and he said, um, 
it's not enough, I want underground therapy. And we talked a little bit, and then it turned out that um, he said that he had had epileptic seizures in the past. So we don't let people with epilepsy in the studies. Um, only because this is just the initial phase. People with epilepsy have taken MDMA or LSD without triggering a seizure. Even if you get a seizure, you can do stuff that's not fatal, usually if you're prepared. And, but I felt like I couldn't refer this person to an underground therapy setting. So I said, um, I just couldn't do it. And um, I didn't hear anything for about a month and a half. And then I got a call from the police. And the police said, do you know this guy? And I said, yeah, I, I had heard from him. He contacted me, and he wanted to know about therapy, but I didn't have anywhere to refer him to. And the police said, well, that's, you know, we're glad to hear that, that you knew of him, and, it's, and the reason we're calling you is because he's committed suicide, and he's left you a suicide note. And, um, and they said they would send it to me. And so then I got this suicide note, and it turned out he committed suicide the very next day after I told him I couldn't refer him underground therapy. The note was the most gracious, beautiful note. He's like, I'm not blaming you, I'm blaming the system, you know, and I, I know you did as much as you could, but uh, it's just I can't live like this. And he said, you can use this note to tell people that if these drugs were approved, I might have been one more person saved. So I'm aware that there are people committing suicide because they can't get into our studies. And that's the pressure to try to do it as fast as we can, but not too fast. And so that's why I'm very sympathetic when people say, what about self-medication? One last question. Hi, Rick. Thanks again for your work on behalf of making the, the world more psychologically healthy. Yeah. I think it's amazing that there's uh, people with enough passion to do this and just butt up against just a labyrinth of bureaucratic regulations for decades. Uh, that said, uh, my friends and I have been recently trying a different psychedelic mescaline, which there seems to be no studies done by maps on it or anywhere that I could find. And we found um, one very good therapeutic use case for it, one very specific one, because it's a drug that promotes very authentic communication between people similar to MDMA. So I was wondering, like, what would it take, if that is at all feasible, to do a mescaline study like by maps or some can, other Can way. you say what that specific case that you think it's good for? Uh, well, yes. There are a lot of people who just, their main concern is in life. is like what other people think about them. And they just live their whole life worrying about it. And they have theories based on, based on, oh, does this person like me or hate me? And sometimes they're on like either side of the economy, Wednesday and a Thursday, they're like, oh no, maybe this person loves me. I'm like, oh, maybe they hate me. These could be people in a relationship together. And uh, they could spend their whole lives like thinking this and never find it out. So with mescaline, like, that is like the first thing that comes out. It like eliminates, like anything that's kind of on your mind, you would like almost inevitably reveal. It's like other drugs like alcohol or something. 
they uh, let you speak your mind, but at the same time, they like incapacitate your mind. And, and like what you speak is not very lucid, not very eloquent. But in masculine, you're very lucid, and you you could just you in like a kind of autistic, childish way, you very much reveal your like how you feel about other people, how you feel about yourself towards other people, and that just eliminates it. And I've taken it with my girlfriend, who was. Uh, not depressed at the time, but very depressive, and that very much helped our relationship. That's great. This is a great question to end on. Mescaline is the most important psychedelic that is not currently being researched. And so it's really good that you brought that up. And I'll say, when, when I was um, 18 years old and first starting to do psychedelics at, at um, New College in Sarasota, Florida, um, again, this is 1971, 72, Somebody came by with a half a pound of masculine. And so I bought all of it. <laughs> and um, my friends and I proceeded to use it over the next couple months. Um, I had a lot of friends. Because <laughs> we didn't all do it all the time. Um, but masculine is fantastic. And um, in uh, 1953, the U.S. Army did uh, the Chemical Warfare Service of the Army, they tested um, eight drugs for toxicity. On the one hand was mescaline, on the other was methamphetamine, and in the middle was MDMA. So that's actually the first test that we're aware of by in the US um, of MDMA was in this context. So the way to think about MDMA is that it's like methamphetamine in that it makes you alert and it you know, can keep you up all night, but it doesn't make you jittery the way that methamphetamine will, or you can sit still and be awake all night. And it's like mescaline in that it brings things to the surface, but it doesn't have the visuals, it doesn't have the kind of ego dissolution, um, but it has the warmth and the heart of mescaline. So MDMA, is a good way to think about it is sort of somewhat of a cross between mescaline and methamphetamine. Um, the reason that um, mescaline, first off, is very hard to find is that it's not that potent. So you need roughly 400 milligrams or so for a full psychedelic experience. And so underground chemists are looking uh, to make drugs that are more powerful. And, you know, so you can sell more, you know, and you get more money per, per dose. So mescaline um, has that disadvantage, you could say, of requiring 400 or half, 400 milligrams or up to half a gram for full psychedelic experience. You can have a lot of beneficial stuff at lower doses as well. Um, that's also a reason why it's not been yet um, studied to medicalize. So it's so expensive for us to make these drugs in GMP, good medical practices way, that um, you know, psilocybin you can do in 20 or 30 milligrams and have a full psychedelic dose. You know, MDMA is up to 125, but then you know you just need to be making way, way more, and the price goes up for mescaline when you have to get 400 milligrams or half a gram. That's no reason, no real excuse not to make it into a medicine. It's just to say the economics are a little bit different. And um, there's a drug that's sort of similar to mescaline called MDA. So it's methylene dioxyamphetamine. It's, it's, it's like a cross between MDMA and LSD a little bit. Um, right now, um, there, there is no 
um, resources that we're aware of to work on mescaline. But I think it has incredible healing potential, and I can only hope that one day research will start with mescaline. Thank you all. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I forget it, I'd like to reiterate what Rick said just now about having an intention before an experience. Now, while I realized that what he was talking about was their MDMA work, personally, I found that the same thing works quite well for ayahuasca experiences. Early on, I learned that even though I began the session with a clear intention of what I wanted to work on that night, once the session began, I, well, I simply let go of my thoughts about that intention and let the medicine guide me from then on. And in my case, it's worked wonders for me. So if you haven't tried that with your medicine work yet, well, maybe you want to consider it. So Rick thinks that there will be full legalization of psychedelic medicines by 2035. Well, how convenient is that, I ask? (laughs) You see, for reasons that I don't fully understand, I've always known that I was going to live to be at least 94 years old. Well, fully understand. I guess I should be honest here. One of the main reasons I believe that is because on one of my ayahuasca sessions, I had a vision of, well, I had a vision of who was celebrating my 94th birthday with me. So that's probably the main reason I think I'll live to be 94. But if you do the math, in 2035, I'll only be 93. So if all goes well, I'm going to stick around at, well, at least until the drugs are legal once again. Uh, Well, at least that sounds good to me. (laughs) But can you believe it? After all of the work that the volunteers, the donors, the therapists, and the staff at MAPS have put in, Well, we are now within just a year of legal psychedelic-assisted therapy to become available under the FDA's Expanded Access Program. Yes, there still are some things that MAPS must do to fully qualify for that program, but I think we can all rest assured that Rick Doblin and his merry band are going to make it across the finish line. And as Terrence McKenna sometimes said, and not a moment too soon. I can think back, oh, say 30 years ago, When I would mention that some of my friends were suffering from PTSD, well, people would ask me what that was. Today, things are quite different. It doesn't take degrees in sociology and medicine to look around the world and see that huge segments of our human family are suffering from this malady. I think that maybe one of the things we all can do is to be aware of the symptoms of PTSD in our friends, relatives, and neighbors, and then at the very least let them know about the various psychedelic treatments that are now becoming available and may be of help for them. I know that doesn't sound like much, but if you remember back from one of Lex Pelger's Salon 2.0 podcasts of psychedelic stories from around the country, there was one woman, uh, I think she was a military veteran, who was having a terrible time readjusting to civilian life. And it was just a passing mention of the MAPS Phase 2 study that caught her attention. She made it into the study, and today she has only a few minor symptoms of PTSD. Now, had you been the person who told her about that study, wouldn't you be feeling pretty good about yourself right now? So, please do what you can to spread the word about treatments that are now becoming available for the scourge of PTSD. And go see From Shock to Awe and take some friends. It... Well, it could be a life-changing evening for some people. 
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>